0: I was recently invited to take the Virtual Busker project to Hobart, and I won't go too much into the detail about the Virtual Busker because there's a whole other podcast on that. This episode is about a different type of art adventure. It concerns the largest privately funded art museum in the Southern Hemisphere, and for those that aren't aware of any of the story, a little bit about the man who made it. But first, just a word or two about Hobart. It's the capital city of Tasmania, which is Australia's southernmost island state. It's a place that might sometimes accidentally be left off a hastily drawn map of Australia by someone that's not very familiar with geography. Anyway, you have to include it on the map because Tasmania definitely exists. Some would argue that its existence is even more tangible since a guy called David Walsh built an art museum on the bank of the Derwent River, called Mona, the Museum of Old and New Art. David Walsh is an interesting character and a bit of a subversive icon. Of course, I tried to get an interview with him for this podcast, but as a friend said, you know, he's rich and famous and you and I are mere mortals. David's reserved parking spot at Mona is titled God and next to it, his wife's God's mistress. He famously made his fortune as part of a high-tech gambling syndicate, and he's had some very high-profile stouches with the Australian Taxation Office. But he's also a rare philanthropist of the type that's pretty unique in Australia. In the past, he's described Mona as an adult Disneyland, and its themes really reflect this. There's plenty of sex and death. There's 151 plaster cast vaginas on level two. Vim Delvoir's cloaca digestion machine is on permanent display. It poos once a day at 2pm. Julius Pop's Bitfall collects words from the internet and prints them in the air with falling water. There's antiquities from ancient Egypt, which David Walsh has described as possibly the only things in the collection that are likely to be worth anything in 50 years. He says a lot of stuff, but the architecture It's a giant underground labyrinth dug out of sandstone. A man's fantasy cave that any superhero would be envious of. The most popular way to get to Mona is by ferry. They've got their own, of course. And obviously, it's not a boring white ferry. It's a camouflage one. It's also known as the MR1. MR stands for Mona Roma. Passengers have the opportunity to sit on fiberglass sheep for the 20-minute journey. What are you going to do? I sit down on a sheep while the captain's voice cuts through the hum of the engines. Hi guys, welcome to One this morning. Some brief safety information there the It's a beautiful morning and the water of the Derwent is silky smooth. I spend a reasonable portion of this trip in my own thoughts, imagining how cool it would be to be rich enough to have my own art museum. What would it be like? How would it be different to David's? What makes Mona so special? I'm going to check out the art today, and then return tomorrow. I've got an interview with curatorial assistant, Pippa Mott. There
1: you go. Cheers. And um, just make your way down to B3. All right, thanks.
0: You can take the glass elevator or the spiral staircase deep down through layers of sandstone until you reach the base level of the museum. At this point, it's time to explore.
1: My name's Pip Mott, I'm curatorial Assistant here at Mona. I've been working with Mona for coming up to five years.
0: Pip was previously based in Sydney and came to Hobart for the Mona job. I hit her with the big, all right, cliched question straight away. Why is art important?
1: Art kind of uh, animates our lives. It's a question of why 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 is culture valuable? Um, Art's such a big part of that and it has so many different forms. I think it has the capacity to reach really broad audiences and move people.
0: As well as the arts, Pip has some background in archaeology and biology, which definitely plays in well with the themes at Mona.
1: A lot of David's kind of rationale or his kind of driving interests that kind of push our exhibition agenda are actually informed by um, biology and psychology and that kind of thing. So there's, I was there's really so
0: curious much... how the team works with David and how different ideas are brought to the table.
1: We've all got our own different specialties and interests, and the way we kind of divvy out the work is fairly organic, um, you know, and the way we actually develop our exhibition program is pretty random as well. It's usually a combination of people putting things in front of David or opportunities that just kind of fall in our lap or David presenting something very specific that we tackle as a group and then decide, you know, who's who's the best fit for it. But we're all from very different backgrounds.
0: The day that I spoke with Pip, I'd caught the bus to Mona, and had a good chat with the bus driver, Tim. I was the only passenger that morning, so I sat up the front. The noise of the engine gets a bit loud, but Tim gave me a bit of background.
2: I'm a contract driver with Mona, so I work for Experience Tasmania, uh, which is the grey line operator in Tassie, and we do tours all around um, the island, so we visit all the iconic locations. Day to day, you never know what's going to happen, and you always have surprises. Uh, Mariah Island is one of my favourites. That's uh, an island off the east coast of Tasmania. We had a tour group up there the other day and we found a um, kangaroo, a a huge forest of kangaroo that had been brought down by Tasmanian devils.
0: The Tasmanian devil is currently ranked the largest carnivorous marsupial in the world. It's about the size of a little dog, looks like a large black rat, and it has a blood-curdling scream.
2: Anyway, we found this carcass the remains of a roo that had been brought down and um, yeah we did a lot like a little bit of crime scene investigation with the group It was really good fun we worked out where the, the kangaroo had been brought down there was all this flattened grass and fur everywhere um, and as devils pull an animal apart as they're feeding on it we found all the bits and pieces like, like the kangaroo puzzle put it back together
0: this reminds me of an exhibition they had at Mona recently in which the carcass of a freshly slaughtered bull was pulled apart ritualistically by local artsy volunteers, there was also some naked people on crosses being fed blood. Protesters at the event held up mirrors so that attendees could see themselves.
2: Yeah, the bull was already dead, and um, they put it in a, in a circle of people, and then they all walked in, dressed in white, and just ripped it to pieces. <coughs> but you know, I mean, a lot of the people that were complaining about that, saying, "Oh, it's terrible," whatever. They, they they like to go to their supermarket and see their bull neatly packaged, drained of blood, and wrapped in plastic.
0: Tim strikes me as a proud Tasmanian, and with that in mind, he's quite well read on local history.
2: Tasmania's history since European settlement is dark, brutal, gruesome, but highly entertaining. So, you know, some of the stories, some of the characters, some of our early bush rangers and convicts, um, You know Alexander Pearce, he escaped several times from penal settlements in Tasmania Uh, Whenever he did, he always encouraged some of his fellow convicts to come with him, and it wasn't so he had someone to talk to, it was so he had something to eat. So he's also known, Alexander Pierce, as the convict cannibal. The last time they actually the authorities apprehended him, um, he was in the process of skinning his younger companion, and in his backpack he had uh, two loaves of bread and a large block of cheese. So he had plenty of food, had no need to eat human, he just developed a taste for it.
0: It's a little bit different to the general romanticised version of bush rangers most Australians would be familiar with. People like the very famous Ned Kelly.
2: We think of Ned as a, you know, a bit of a Robin Hood type character. I mean, most Australians, if you asked them would you sit down and have a beer with Ned Kelly, they'd be hell yeah, of course I would. Um, but the Tasmanian bush rangers, they were completely different. They were a nasty bunch of characters. Um, Thomas Jeffries for one. I won't tell you any stories about him, I don't want to give you nightmares. Rocky Whelan, he was one of our, uh, probably regarded as the most violent of our bush rangers. His modus operandi, if he ran into you on a deserted track or a dark alley in Hobart town, he'd just pull out his pistol and shoot you dead. He'd then go through your belongings to see if you had anything of interest to him. You you're a human lucky dip. I've actually read one of the coroner's reports for um, rocky wheel and and the coroner noted that uh, the victim had been hit with such force that the facial bones were protruding out of the back of his skull
0: i asked pip if mona's dark vibes are actually a response to this bloody history
2: it is a
1: dark history and it's um and you can feel it and maybe we are indeed reacting to that
0: Overwatching my conversation with pip on the other side of the table sitting quietly is alex johnston He's the senior media coordinator at Mona.
2: The the broader Mona family in the, the Dark Lab team, the guys that look after Dark Mofo, they are working with the state government on a concept at Macquarie Point that will, I guess, own up and face up to a lot of the terrible things that happen to the Indigenous people in Tasmania. So, yeah, it's a conversation that we increasingly need to have, and Mona, I guess, plays a small
0: role in that. I'm working on a theory here, but we need to go back to Tim, the bus driver that reads Coroner's Reports. Remember that story about the dead kangaroo?
2: And then we found the, the scats, the devil poo, and we were able to, like, go through that and actually see what other things the devils had been eating. And it was really, really cool.
0: That's another Mona connection. Cloaca, the artwork that we mentioned before, where people come to witness a machine doing a poo, and they're fascinated by it. They want to investigate it further.
2: We spent probably about half an hour doing... Um, kangaroo crime scene investigation.
0: Is it possible that people go to Mona out of morbid fascination more than anything, including art?
1: When we opened, it was, you know, this this dark, underground, mysterious kind of collection that was owned by this mysterious man. And I think we've got a bit beyond that. It's not, it, you know, it was once kind of labelled as a museum of sex and death, and, and we we're, weren't much more than that. Um, the darkness, I, I think... We're interested in humanity um, and darkness or, you know, the darker sides of humanity. They're worth examining and so are the the lighter parts of humanity or existence. We have in the past maybe gravitated towards the darker stuff, but I, I think that with the Pharos extension, we balance that out. It's a much more balanced experience, I feel.
0: The Pharos extension is indeed a bright new space that's recently been added to Mona.
1: That's actually a new extension of the museum that sits cantilevered out over the water. It's this beautiful A-frame building that contains a series of new works from American light artist James Terrell. Things like perceptual cells, dark spaces, light tunnels, um, Gansfeld spaces. And, and so we've kind of cherry-picked some pretty significant designs of his, commissioned, custom-made for Mona.
0: These designs are designed to mess with your brain via visual perception.
1: It's sensory overload and, and your retinas are just trying to process and, and in, that, in that process of processing some pretty strange stuff happens and I think I would say our Gansfeld space which is called Event Horizon that's the one that you're talking about, that is my favourite of our Tyrells. Um, and you know, you go in there, I think it's about a 14 or 15 minute cycle or so and you, you go in in your white socks and you might be with a group of strangers and you're all in this kind of collective
0: awe. I did go in with a group of strangers and we had to put white socks on We were sat down against a wall and a few metres in front of us there was a set of stairs which led to what appeared to be a rectangular screen emanating a vibrant blue light. We were being directed by a young man who told us to put the socks on and he gave us some warnings about strobe lights and possible feelings of uncomfortableness in the space. But he was a friendly guy and it seemed to put everyone at ease.
1: Our invigilators um, operate on rotation, so they're actually bumped from each each location to the next in one-hour slots.
0: What did you, an invigilator?
1: Invigilators. We call them, you know, our front of houses, so it's actually the people who are stationed throughout the gallery and who are the kind of main public interface.
0: The invigilators are essentially supervisors for the artworks, and they appear to be a mix of art students, musicians, quirky older people, and maybe a few individuals that would otherwise be lost on the fringes of society. I don't want to generalise, but it's nice that Mona creates these jobs and I can see how many people might view this as a form of financial support for a local grassroots arts community.
1: And they're they a very, very important part of, of the Mona experience. Yeah, and there must
0: be hundreds of them working.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not sure what the, the numbers are at the moment, but it would be approaching 100, yeah. I think.
0: Before we enter Event Horizon, our invigilator tells us that there's no photography allowed and he tells that to everyone, with one exception... In a previous session, Australian film superstar Margot Robbie was snapping away happily. He admits to us that he didn't have the courage to tell her no. I guess he felt like a mere mortal in her presence. Meanwhile, I've realised that the rectangular screen on the wall, which we're now walking up to, is actually the entrance to this exhibition. It's currently filled with an intense blue light. The curved surfaces make it difficult to read distance in here. I strike up a conversation with the invigilator. He tells me that Mona has great staff parties. And as the light gradually fades from blue to violet to red, for some reason I feel the need to start whispering. It's something about the light. Then things ramp up. The experience culminates in a succession of rapid fire, multicoloured strobing effects. Closing your eyes doesn't make it go away. There's no escape then it's over.
1: I mean, I, I don't want to say disorientating or discombobulating too much, but, you know, that is, that is a bit of a, a trend with the kind of works we show and the way we design our spaces.
0: Some parts of Mona might be getting brighter with these light works, but there's still a strong, healthy diet of darkness to feast on. Remember Vim Delvoir, the artist that created Cloaca, the mechanical digestion simulator? Well, he has an unusual arrangement with a canvas called Tim, not the bus driver, different Tim.
1: Vim Delvoir is an artist that we have a long-standing relationship with because in the very early days of Mona, we, we held a solo exhibition of his work. Um, we've got numerous works of his in the collection. He kind of really sits well with the Mona ethos, but, but Tim is not actually ours, we don't own him. He's owned by the tattoo, or his skin, let's say, is owned by a German collector.
0: So Tim's tattooed skin is the artwork and it's been purchased by a German collector.
1: Tim was actually tattooed alongside a group of pigs. Um, Vim Delvar has a has a pig farm. Um, so Tim's tattoo actually matches that of another pig. I think they were tattooed alongside each other. Um, in the same way that Vim Delvar's pigs, when they die a natural death, their, um, their skins are preserved and mounted as artworks. Tim's skin will be the same, and that will be in the collection of this German collector.
0: But for now, Tim sits on plinths, with his tattooed back facing the public at various art spaces around the world.
1: He will sit for X amount of days or hours throughout the year within gallery spaces and, and you know, as an artwork. he sit on a plinth for about six hours a day. He's very dedicated to his, his meditation practice, so sometimes he genuinely is just just blocking yeah. out the noise and meditating. But um, we have an arrangement, or we have had an arrangement for the last couple of years where he's spent the summers with us, and he's one of our most popular displays.
0: I'm sort of curious. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Yeah. And I don't know if you can answer this, but... Mm. I wonder what he gets paid.
1: Oh, look, he—I can't tell you how much he gets paid, but—but
0: so, but you know how much he gets paid. I do know how yeah. much he gets paid. Yeah,
1: um, it's—it's it's reasonable. Is it the sort
0: of sum yeah. of money that you would say, well, yeah, yeah, I can understand that.
1: Look, what he does is grueling work. Um, I don't know anyone else who would um, be able to to handle it physically or mentally. Um, so. Uh, You know, it's agreed upon, and it's an agreed upon fee. But like, even though it's not his project, he's not the artist. He's so, so, so involved with it that this is his life's work now. It's, it's what he does. And he's rich. (laughs) I don't know about that, but, but you know, he's 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 doing a job, and he's doing it very well.
2: Your your older demographic, your traditionalists, that um, are probably only going to Mona because their friends told them, "Oh, you absolutely have to go." Um, and then they get there and they're not expecting to see a wall of vaginas and stuff like that or a machine that replicates the human digestive system and it's it's all a bit too much for them. But, um, yeah, the, the majority of people absolutely love it. And understandably so, because there's nothing, nothing quite like it. We walk with a swagger in our step now. Tasmanians used to be almost a little bit embarrassed to say we were from Tasmania. But now it's, yeah, we... Um, very proud and the, you can't deny the mona effect
1: i think mona has profoundly changed hobart tasmania and the general consensus is that it you know it has been a positive for the for the community there's a, some tension in that some people feel that it has eclipsed a really really strong pre-existing grassroots arts community but Uh, You know, I can't say this in an unbiased way, but I would say that we prop each other up, that we draw a lot of inspiration and a lot of great artists are coming from that, from the local scene. A lot of them are on our staff, are contributing their skill set, their ideas, their vitality.
0: I've got one more potential gotcha question for Pip. Might Mona be engaging in flagrant populism?
1: (laughs) Ooh... I think that we can make decisions pretty quickly here because we don't have a board and we don't have any kind of, you know, um, state investment or anything like that. We can kind of wear a law unto ourselves. Um, and, and internally, yeah, you know, it's not a committee, but there's robust feedback and everyone's pretty involved and everyone's really invested. It's working at the moment. Well, I say that, you know, we're still not making money, but yeah, we're working towards it.
2: We're not making money. Right? No, God, no. <laughs> I think it's great. I say, um, give them free reign. What could possibly go wrong? If things do go wrong, we'll just call it art.
0: Thank you, Tim, for driving the bus and for your stories. Thank you, Pippa Mott. Thank you, Alex Johnston and all the staff at Mona. Let's finish with one more snippet from Tim, which may just sum up art for a lot of people. I missed recording the beginning of this story, but I think it was an exhibition opening people were setting up for. Somebody accidentally left a glove or some gloves, gloves on the floor. the
2: floor. And he didn't realise he kept going on his way, but from that point on up to the of business, everyone who walked through that room and saw the glove would stop, have a think about it, take a photo, discuss it with their friends. Bit of chin stroke. That's it, try and work out what it all meant.